We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We want to gather tonight to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember His substitutionary death for us, and and to encourage each other to keep on living for the Lord uh, in these days. So that's what we're here for, and we pray that He'll be honored. And let's do that. Let's pray just now. Heavenly Father, come before you in the name of Christ, that name which prevailed over sin and death. He prevailed over all the temptations that the devil and the world laid before him without sin. He lived a perfect life and he gave himself on Mount Calvary, on Golgotha, the hill of a skull, dying in our place, taking upon himself our iniquities and doing so in a way that was publicly displayed to the whole world with the Romans officiating, with the Jews also participating, and with him at the center focus, the earth growing dark, the wrath of God being poured out upon his only son instead of upon us for all eternity. Lord, this is the testimony of Scripture. We believe it. It sobers us. And tonight as we come to remember the Lord and you do so at the table, I pray that our thoughts will be drawn Christward, heavenward, Godward. Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in your Bibles, if you would please, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15. And I want to say a word of welcome to those who have just arrived. Thank you for making the effort to come out tonight and be with us. After the scripture reading, I'm going to ask Naomi to come and sing the special that she's prepared. Then we'll have the message and then the Lord's table elements. Welcome. We're in Mark's Gospel and chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them, 
But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Now the the third hour, by the way, is 9 a.m., different rendering in John as far as the hours, Jewish rendering versus uh, 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 Roman. With him they also crucified two robbers, one in his right hand and one and the other rather on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself waited for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in linen, in the linen, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. My message tonight is titled, The Man of Sorrows. The Man of Sorrows. As I was uh, thinking about how to uh, encourage our folks uh, who've experienced a lot of loss in their lives in the recent months and recent years, it dawned on me that a good way to do that might be to remind ourselves that at the same time we experience our grief, The Lord Jesus knows perfectly well what we are experiencing. This is because he himself was a man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief. Before you jump in your mind, however, to the passage that I think you might be thinking of in the Old Testament prophets, first think with me of his many experiences of grief. Going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 6. After the creation of the first and first millennium of world history, the Bible tells us that people multiplied on the earth and that the wickedness of the people on the earth was very great. It says in Genesis 6 that the intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. This bleak picture of humanity is why the Bible says in the verses following that, that the Lord was sorry that he had made people. And it says that he was grieved. Let's just look at the verse. It says in verse number six, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He went about to correct this grief and this wickedness through a purging process of judgment through the great flood. But my point here is to focus on the idea of the grief and to say that Jesus, united as he is with God the Father and with the Spirit in the Trinity, felt grief from the early stages of world history. His sorrows did not start at the cross of Calvary nor in Gethsemane, His sorrows began from our vantage point thousands of years before that when Satan and mankind fled away from God, rebelled against God, and then for over 1,600 years developed an evil on the earth that became so pervasive that he had to destroy the planet, basically, and save just a few people alive. His sorrows began a long time ago. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see another example of these sorrows coming to the Lord's doorstep, as it were. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse number 11, the Lord had selected a man named Saul, a Benjamin, to be the king over Israel. And after a number of failures, King Saul ran through God's patience, so to speak. God said in verse number 11, 
I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And then down in verse number 35 of the same chapter, it says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. Samuel's the prophet, remember. He's actually the last of the judges and and a prophet in Israel. So he mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel because he turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. In chapter 15 and verse number 12, uh, listen to this. When Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. In chapter 15 and verse 17, Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, anoint you king over Israel? So Saul began really to think of himself as somebody when he had been humble and God had chosen him to be king, but it went to his head and he left God behind. He left humility behind and God then regretted that he had made him king. Now there's long explanation we could offer about God's regret or uh, talking about how God quote-unquote changes his mind or something like that. Um, I can say this, at least tonight, we recognize this feeling of regret or grief, uh, and God is colored by his decree. It's colored by his omniscience. The, The lines are colored in by his omnipotence, but somehow still God has a feeling that can be described as grief, as remorse, as sadness, uh, being sorry, regret. In humans, that's a thought like, I should not have done that because of how I now know it turned out. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. Perhaps the person who is saying that had an inkling from the start that the situation could turn bad or they could respond in the wrong way. But other times we have a sense that it's something maybe necessary to go through. So even if it's going to have a bad outcome, it must be done. Uh, You're faced sometimes with kind of intractable difficulties where the doctor tells you you have a problem. You've got to go through A treatment or B treatment or die. And neither A nor B is very nice, but... If the outcome is to come out the way you want it, you know that you're going to make that choice and you're going to have some suffering along the way, chemotherapy or or radiation or whatever, surgery. So So it is in God. He can be sad about the outcome, although he had ordained up to that point that it was necessary for that thing to occur. It was necessary for Saul to be installed first as king for a host of other reasons that we may not understand, we may never understand. But he did, and he knew that it had to happen, but that doesn't change the fact that you know, you, you uh, maybe have to guide your family in a certain way and you see the suffering that it causes, and you are sad about that. You regret that, but maybe, maybe it had to be done. Um, so Jesus, as part of the divine trinity, knew sorrow and grief, not only from the evil of all of the creation in Genesis 6, but from someone whom he had appointed and entrusted with the kingship and leadership role over his people, Israel. 
But those aren't the only instances of divine grief in Scripture. There's another one in Psalm 78. Another one in Psalm 78. And it's in verse number 40, although there are a number of other verses as well. But around verse 40, we'll let's go there in our copy of God's Word, Psalm 78. It says there, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. You remember the, the great uh, plagues upon the nation of Egypt. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He could not spare their soul from death but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on in safety so that they did not fear that the sea overwhelmed their enemies. So he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land uh, of, of Israel, the promised land, the land of Canaan as we know it. But... It says, nevertheless, verse 36, they flattered him with their mouth. They lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and did not come again. And then it says in verse 40, which we read already, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Psalm 95.10, it says that for 40 years they grieved him in the wilderness. Isaiah 63.10 adds that they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now what is the connection of Jesus with all of this? I'm trying to specifically talk about the man of sorrows. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do you remember that it says that Jesus was the rock that followed them. He went with those people, Israel, in the, in the land of, out of the land of Egypt and through the wilderness, the one who provided for them, who cared for them. He is the one who was touched by the grief of their rebellion, not only of the whole of humanity, not only a failed leader in Israel, but also the whole nation. The nation as a whole were rebels against him, and so he was well acquainted with this grief He was there with them, seeing what they were doing. There are other texts in the Scripture that talk about grief, uh, divine grief. Ephesians 4.30 is one of them. Do you remember that passage? And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This instruction is part of a series of commands and prohibitions that are uh, enjoined or expected of a person who has been transformed into a new man. The new man has put off the old, been renewed in the spirit of his mind, and he's put on the new man. That's that whole thing that I just said there, that's a, a metaphor for what happens at salvation. 
at salvation. That's what happens. You put off the old man. The old man is crucified. The new man comes. He's created in righteousness and true holiness. And the conduct, therefore, that we lived in the past is supposed to be put off because it's not fitting. It's like an old garment that needs to be put away. Uh, but the, new, the conduct of the new man is enjoined to us, and that's what righteousness looks like. And so when a believer follows the pattern of his old self and gratifies the desires of the flesh, he grieves the Holy Spirit. He gives grief to God. Um, what does that mean, to grieve? Well, in the Greek language, this word means to cause severe mental or emotional distress. When you sin, you cause severe mental or emotional distress to God, to Christ. You vex him, you irritate, you offend, you insult. So I'm trying to say in other words here tonight, God is not dispassionate. That is, he's not just a rock. He's pictured like a rock because of his stability, but he's not just like a rock that has no emotion, that doesn't feel. He's not stoic. He's not a machine. He's not an algorithm. He's not a computer. God is a personal being with emotions and will and mind and heart like we are, or shall I say, we are like he is because he made us that way. He made us that way. He is affected by what is going on here. So here's a thought for you. Don't give the Lord grief, would you? Don't give the Lord grief. Acts 9.4 tells us of Jesus' inquiry to the Apostle Paul, why are you persecuting me? Don't you think he felt that? Jesus felt that? Exodus, I've tied this to when the Lord told Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people. I'm sending you there to take them out of that situation. Jesus felt at that time with Paul and still feels today all of the attacks on his body. If we may carry the analogy of a body anywhere, could I carry it here that we are his body, individually members of that body, and when one of those body members' parts is pierced, is persecuted, is hurt, he feels that because he's the head of the body. Well, the world is full of pain and suffering, isn't it? First Chronicles 4.9 is a really obscure passage. It tells us that a fellow named Jabez, uh, famous for other reasons in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, he was born in pain, the Bible says. His mother gave him that name, Jabez, because he was a pain to her in birth. Yes. Um, and pain and sorrow were multiplied in childbirth, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Remember that? Your sorrow will be increased in conception and giving birth, the Lord said to, to Eve, because that was her kind of portion of the curse. Adam had his, she had hers, the, the serpent had his. And death also brings great sorrow. There's one interesting incident in the scriptures that I found where God told Ezekiel when Ezekiel's wife passed away, he said, don't mourn for her. No open displays of grief. No griefs and sorrows and pains. But the Lord knows it all and is well acquainted with it because Isaiah 53 tells us that the Lord was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And this is what I was saying earlier can be an encouragement to us because if you think you have a hard time, you think you have problems, just realize this, Jesus knows all about them already. Look at Isaiah 53. It says, 
in verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. Imagine, if you will, going back to Mark 15, that you're Jesus standing there, Pilate asking the crowd what to do with you, and everybody in that crowd says what? Get rid of him. Crucify him. I mean, that's like everybody against one, isn't it? And Pilate's gutless in the middle of it. He should have done a lot different than he did, but Jesus couldn't count on that in a human sense to be delivered from this grief. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was that way, and yet what did we do? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Listen, friends, if somebody is in grief, the last thing you want to do is hide your face from them. Isn't it true? You want to help them. You want to be kindly to them. You want to encourage them and and be there by their side. You don't want to despise them and run away from them. But that's what happened to the Lord. He was despised, rejected, sorrows, grief. Given what we looked at just now and all the other portions of Scripture, there can be no, no, no doubt that this is the case, that he knew sorrow, that he knew grief. He knew sorrow and grief over a thousand years. And by the way, could I add this? He knows grief in a much different way than you and I do. He knows grief omnisciently. He knows every grief of every person simultaneously and its cause from sin and where that came about and why and all of the impacts of it. And we get upset when we know the little griefs in our corner of the world. And they're not insignificant, don't take me to say that, but compared to what he has to deal with, he's eminent, preeminently the man of sorrows. He knows a lot more of sorrow than we do. That's for sure. And so I was uplifted by that notion this past week as I thought of how the atoning work of Christ naturally extends into his caring knowledge of our griefs and our sorrows. Let me explain what I mean. On the negative side first, Jesus is not a person who, or or a a mere religious ideal designed to make us feel good. You know, like a superhero, Uh, you know, a myth or a legend on our way to a blank eternity. You know, he's not a crutch just to get us to death after which nothing more is. We have to know that our temporal concerns are not the major concern in this world. And we have to know, too, that eternity is not empty. He died in our place for our sins on the cross in the spring around A.D. 30. And God arranged things such that Jesus' ethical payment for our sin satisfied God's holiness. Now, provided that you appeal to him for the benefits of that work of Christ, of his death and resurrection for you, he will do that and change your very nature and desires. He will wash you clean of your sin. He will forgive you, cleanse you, outfit you for an eternal future of goodness. And he will begin to transform you so that you will be able to live a little early installment of that goodness while you live out the rest of your days on this earth. God the Father also arranged that Jesus would be tempted in all points like we are, yet 
without what? Without sin. The result is that he is a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. He's a man of sorrows. He knows your sorrows. He can be sympathetic to you. He's a, a man well acquainted with grief. He knows your griefs. He is therefore a sympathetic high priest, one who understands our weaknesses, knows our sorrows, sees our griefs, experiences them with us in some way. Now, he doesn't have our weaknesses, but he knows our weaknesses, and he's able to help us, Hebrews 2 tells us. He too experienced grief in other ways I didn't mention, but think of his grief at the death of Lazarus. I mean, the Bible says that he wept. That wasn't acting like so much that's on the television today. That was real grief. What about his father, Joseph, earthly father? The Bible never mentions him after Jesus is 12 years old. Sometime between the time he was 12 and the time he was 30, his father, who was quite likely older than his mother, died. And it's kind of a strange thing because he had the unique experience of anyone who ever lived on the earth, almost, except for the apostles at times, that he had the ability inherent in himself to raise people from the dead. But he was not allowed by the will of the Father to raise some people from the dead. He had to let them die and experience that grief. He had to stand aside and let death persist because that was the will of the Father. Actually, God does that all the time, doesn't he? Most people who die, die. And that's all. And God allows them to stay that way for his own good reasons. Now, we tend to think that's bad. Why, why, when you have the power to stop death, would you not do so? But evidently, even with the grief of it, it is a good thing in God's sight for him not to immediately raise people from the dead. Besides having all wisdom on the matter, he knows that he's going to raise everybody from the dead anyway in the future. It's only a matter of time to us, to his creatures. And in the midst of that time, he's teaching us something through the sorrows and grief. As we experience more sorrow and more grief, we become more like whom? The man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Somehow God is wisely working that in us that we would become more like him. On a few occasions, Jesus did step in and raise somebody from the dead in order to glorify God or to authenticate his own ministry, like Lazarus. You know, the voice came out of heaven, and Jesus prayed to the Father, and he prayed because he wanted them to be able to see uh, the, the glory of God. But anyway, all of that was to say he had to endure the grief and the sorrow with the added knowledge that he could fix the problem in the short run, but then he couldn't because there were so many other reasons that were necessary for him not to do so. The other thing is that he knows our sorrows so well because of what the text says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. There's something about that. He was smitten by God. God did afflict him. But it wasn't just that. Our sins afflicted him in a way, didn't they? My sin hung him there. 
Your sin hung him there. It wasn't just that he was smitten by God and afflicted. He was smitten by me and afflicted. He knows our sorrows so well because he bore them. He carried them. He knows them very well. It doesn't mean that he simply takes away those things that trouble us. Rather, he knows them intimately as his own, and he took the ultimate cause of them, human sin, onto himself. Remember, 1 Peter tells us that he bore in his body our sins on the tree, that that we being uh, dead to sin might live to righteousness. That's what he did in his cross work. In the falling short of the glory of God, the missing of the mark of God's holy standard has put humanity in a situation where grief and sorrow became normalized. In his cross work, he bore our sins in his body and thus the root cause from which springs all sorrow and grief. I conclude this evening before we share the table together. Anytime you distance yourself from God will certainly cause you grief either in the short term or in the long term, or both. (laughs) But either way, it will cause you grief and probably will cause others grief as well. Can you imagine the grief that you cause others in your sin and that you caused others before you were born again? It also causes Jesus grief. Now, the Lord can ultimately deliver you from that sin and grief, and hopefully you will experience that if you haven't already and very soon. And if you are in the midst of grief and sorrow because of loss or other situations beyond your control, as a Christian person, if you're in that kind of grief and sorrow, be assured the Lord Jesus knows about it. He's very intimately acquainted with all of your sorrows. He knows the worst of human treatment, being rejected by men, despised. He knows the feeling that God has forsaken him far more than we do. He is acquainted with all of your griefs. He knows by omniscience. He knows by experience. He knows by carrying those things himself to the cross. I pray that he knows you and you know him and he knows your griefs and you know that he knows your griefs so that you can have that comfort and becoming, be becoming more like him. Well, a little word from Octavius Winslow as we close this message. Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulder by whose power that tree was made to grow and from whom the beings who bore him to death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself He created the tree upon which he was to die. And he nurtured from infancy the men who would nail him to the cross. Can you imagine that? Oh, the depth of the love of Christ for sinners. That's what it's all about. He's the man of sorrows, my friend. Mark it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for allowing us to consider the Lord Jesus as the man of sorrows tonight. And Lord, thank you that you nurtured 
those men from birth who would hammer the nails into your wrists and into your feet and put your cross beam upon the upright that was probably already sitting in the ground and then stand there and divide up your garments and watch as you died. Father, indeed, we can say without a doubt that your son, you ensured that he knew grief and he knew sorrows. And there's nobody here who can say, I've had more sorrows and more griefs than he's had. Not even close. Help us to appeal to him. Help us to find comfort and strength in him who persevered and who is with us and helps us through our grief and sorrow. And we know that, God, you are the God of all comfort and you bring comfort to your people. But the biggest and best comfort is to know that our sins are washed away and that we're up walking uprightly before the Lord because we've been made new creatures because of what Christ did on that cross. Thank you for that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great work. We take this Friday to commemorate the greatest sacrifice that was ever made, ever conceived of in the mind of God or man, and then executed perfectly once for all eternity. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.